you're on the air. Don't say anything crazy. Yeah, so uh, do tell Brother Bear what the uh, the article you were reading on the oil industry was. Tell me. It wasn't so much an article. It was actually the latest uh, in uh, the series of the Tim Ferriss podcast. And it was a very interesting guy. Um, I'm just mm. over halfway. And uh, he's the CEO or the founder, rather. Not the CEO. The founder of Lululemon. Lululemon Athletica. Mm. Um, Canadian guy. Um, and he started out, his first job was in the oil and gas industry. And just before this podcast, we should uh, give our viewers some context. We were talking about the boom time that we're currently experiencing in the oil and gas industry. And people are looking very happy all over the uh, northwestern peninsula. But no, what I am, what I am going to say is that the guy's very interesting. And he was earning an absurd wage at the age of, I believe it was only the tender age of 19, and he was earning, mm. by the time he'd hit 20, he'd amassed um, 700k Canadian. <laughs> oh, my God. But that's not very unheard of. That's the thing. It's, it's a, as I said, it's a feast-famine industry. Um, so you'll have periods, sustained periods of six plus, seven plus years of insane earnings. Um, and then everyone will get laid off when the bubble bursts. So it's kind of, you know, you get such great amounts of wealth um, often for up to a decade and then the bubble will pop and people will be unemployed such that you know I'll meet guys in their late 40s and they're already retired they're just doing part-time jobs here in Calgary um, because they can afford to, to live off that wealth and invest with that wealth for the rest of their existence <laughs> yes good god it, it is a very boom bust isn't it it does come in cycles much like many things in fact everything's mm -hmm. a cycle arguably with um, yeah, dichotomies and polar opposites um, on on everywhere you look, um, but no, just going back to that, the the the, the um, flaring that happens at oil rigs sites is a bit of a nice analogy. You know, you burn hot and fast, and that's uh, the nature of the beast. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you're you're literally you're you're directly seeing your know, resource get sucked from the earth. And converted into cold hard cash, cash, right. earning and burning, cash and checks and snapping necks, necks. <laughs> earning and burning, boy. <laughs> no, honestly, the, the the boom the boom bust cycle of the oil industry is particularly more stark than than other industries. Um, you know, I think the U.S. it, it generally um, when it sneezes, um, Canada gets a, a flu. Um, and I'm sure there's other jurisdictions out there that, that you know, catch uh, very bad um, diseases from that, that initial sneeze. The U.S. is able to generally pick itself up. Texas crude is, is much more robust than Canadian crude. So we're not really seeing the bounce back in Canada directly, but obviously the economic ripples of oil and gas related products flying off the shelves down in the States, that's affecting Canada in a very positive way. Hmm interesting yeah. and brother bear you're in the midst of this more a lot more than i am so tell me about the global dynamic and i know the one of the biggest variables in the global dynamic in terms of the oil price and demand supply dynamics mm. is often dictated by the agreements or infringement of agreements made within opec yeah so in terms of the 
the kind of global dynamics. My knowledge is actually fairly nim limited on how OPEC's policy affects, say, the United States uh, domestic production or North American domestic production. But what I can tell you about oil and gas is that it's very capital intense. Um, there's lag time in getting projects executed. Um, so these are these are come sort of the the ideas that come to mind as as to why it's so boom bust um in terms of the reasons behind that um mm. but there is actually a a kind of um five step a five step process to success no a five step process <laughs> to to sort of the boom and the bust cycle why is it always a five step program now it's a 10 step <laughs> <laughs> oh is Not that is that five. is that the is the 10 step from aa is that what happens when they get laid off? Do they go from the, the five step to the 10 step in AA? That's right. That's five steps of boom and bust in the oil industry. And then that converts to the 10, 10 steps of the big, the big book by Bill W. <laughs> God, good God. Well, I, I don't blame him. I mean, God. Uh, and anyone would uh, end up at a Alcoholics Anonymous after a bust like that. Let's face it, they're already alcoholics and red-nosed red -nosed bastards when they're in the industry. So, <laughs> I've, I've, I've often heard there's so many characters in the oil and gas industry, and um, generally that's been viewed in a positive light. People say, you know, you get these great characters and the integrity of those people is generally world-renowned. Yes, yes. It's, um, I think it's um, an astute generalization because... The, the oil and gas folks I've met um, in in Calgary, um, a, there's a lot of people in Alberta that are from Texas or have lived in Texas or Louisiana and vice versa. And they, they're all characters. They've, they've lived life. They, they've generally um, experienced careers not, not too far from the military, um, kind of mm -hmm. the, the way you're spoken to on the oil rigs, um, the amount of movement you do in your career. I mean, I, I work with one guy and he... He worked in obviously Alberta, but then he, he worked down in Texas and then he went up north to the Bakken formation to North Dakota. Then he went to Saudi Arabia. Um, wow. And now he's back in Calgary. And that's that's really uncommon. That's really quite common. You, you meet mm. guys in their 50s and 60s now kind of entering the twilight years of their careers and they've just been all over the place. Wow, that's some uh, beautiful life experience you can pick up in uh, that industry. It really takes you around the world. Yeah, I think I think sort of in um, inevitably it builds character. Um, but on, on kind of a more macroeconomic level, back to the stages, the top, the the five stages. Um, so you kind of have um, the beginning of the cycle, the bottom, brother bear, um, the shitty end of the cycle, <laughs> where you <laughs> you have excess oil supply exceeds demand. Um, so that's what it is, right? You basically sooner or later you inevitably end up in a state of supply surplus yes yes in fact the oil industry is incredibly libertarian and capitalist in that it's so self-correcting um and it's so self-correcting because it's almost in a in a really screwed up way so tied to nature or so mm. tied to a resource and supply and demand um puppeteering so you have um, you have this period of excess. Obviously, that results in low oil prices, underinvestment by the oil industry, um, indebtedness. Um, but then these low prices will stimulate higher demand. So this is you know these are very kind of one hundred and one concepts. Um, but the demand will grow faster than supply. The tightening of of the supply demand balance will happen, 
and then you'll get the prices will shoot up again okay. and then yeah so there's one and two then stage three um you're getting on to okay it's boom time it's boom time cities like you know calgary houston um you know parts of kuwait you're seeing the big pickup trucks everyone's doing really well you know it's like <laughs> it's it's an incredibly short-sighted industry um and um, basically, the companies will start making swathes of money. They'll ramp up investments on new projects, invest in new technologies. Um, and this is another point. Like, I, I was highly surprised. This is mainly due to my ignorance to find that um, the IoT and AI industries are incredibly um, diverse and, ex and accelerating hugely in, in the oil and gas space. Um, mm. You know, whether it's on oil rigs, pump jacks, whether you're looking at you know, automated measurements um, where you're looking at down, downhole is one of the most delicate industries in the world. Um, but anyway, enough of that. So they're basically stage three, you're looking at higher prices rise. Mm -hmm. um, and the longer they're high, the greater the investment. So you can have very drawn out periods like we experienced in the 80s with the North Sea mm -hmm. in the UK. And then new oil plays become more economical. Um, new companies arrive on the scene. Um, and then with the leverage that comes with that. Um, and that's all okay, but then you get higher prices that come with that. So when it comes, when it goes above a dollar twenty, um, I'm talking in Canadian standards here, Canadian dollars here, um, the demand growth is going to start to curb. Um, new, new projects sort of get farmed out to cheaper places and then production growth begins to outstrip demand growth. And then mm. that's that leads to, you know, your typical, we, we, me and you are familiar with this in capital markets, the, the bubble burst, the price collapse. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly the expenditures are slashed, the debt is realized, the cycle is complete and returned to stage one. So brother Bat, I understand the stages now. So what kind of a time frame does that play out Good over? Good question, brother Bear. So, Essentially, the um, the boom bust cycle um, is always between a kind of a five and ten year period. It can go under um, or over that, um, but generally, um, I've just actually looked into this. I've done Jamie's job for him and Googled it, and more specifically, <laughs> said seven to nine years. So, yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, and do you think there's a longer term dynamic at play whereby? generally fossil fuels are going to be phased out because the layman talks about you know cars in their everyday life is that something that's going to fade i mean people i think don't realize the other industrial applications of um the various um i suppose fractional distillates of crude oil including you know the shipping business which mm. is a massive mm. um part of the sector in terms yes. of demand yeah so i think it's it's highly underestimated the amount of materials we use in our everyday life, um, the, the plastics. plastics. I mean, you, you take sort of the interior of a car um, and the amount of oil just within there um, is huge. It goes so far beyond, um, you know, the, the fuels, right? You've got household goods, medical, electronics, mm. um, you know, yep. different consoles in agriculture, toys, clothing. Um, I think that certainly when at least for uh, motor vehicles, for, for, for automobiles, you know, the oil and gas is phased out. Okay, we're going to see a demand slump, but it's definitely by no means the end of an industry. It's more of a kind of 
a more a metamorphosis of that industry into other applications. Mm. So would you say it's um, maybe a, a non-trivial um, aspect of the demand? Definitely. Cars, C- certainly non-trivial. Um, but not necessarily a deal breaker in terms of demand because there's plenty of other it's, stuff um, out there. It's not the be-all and end-all. Um, you know, I think um, yeah. certainly non-trivial. Um, and there's other things that aren't going away. Kerosene, for example, um, use of diesel mm. and, and petroleums in um, in ships, huge tankers. They guzzle up so much. And I don't think there's kind of an electric market for those modes of transportation yet. Um no, cars are going to, well, are clearly going to be the first ones. And then I know they're starting to look into uh, the electrification of aviation. Um, but it's a lot harder um, for aviation to move into that space because it's just, by definition, you need that much more higher powered motors to actually get you airborne. And then ships will probably be the last one yeah, to go. Yeah, but I think that's that's accurate. I've, I've seen certain electrical um prototypes for planes and they're always a bit um inconsistent um in, in terms of you know their the proof of concepts but definitely they'd be the one to follow after cars um, i think the next big um the big kind of resource we're, we're going to be looking at is, is going to be graphene um yes oh really yes. Uh, so i think the it's i don't know why it's not reported as as much as it should be but there was a hype phase. There was, there was. Um, I think a lot of the the EV market, though, and the battery packs are, are kind of going to be dependent on ultra-fast charging, and that's that's going to come with the kind of graphene, aluminium um, EV batteries. Um, so I, I don't know. That's that's where my money is kind of in, especially in, uh, in China. Um, the graphene market and the, the graphene mining processes doesn't fit the health and safety and environmental structures of the West anymore. Um, so again, unfortunately, it's all going to be farmed out to China um, and territories of the East. But I do believe graphene is going to going to give some some crazy returns. Gosh, I remember way back when we were just sort of at the tail end of our time at Manchester University, they'd built that graphene centre. Do you remember? I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that for years, actually. Yeah, yeah Graphene Research Centre, and it was supposed to be this um, hub in the north of the UK where you'd have the best and the brightest from material from material science um, field. So I, I wonder whether there's been significant... I know it was in the news a lot, actually, that centre when it first was opened um, because it sort of coincided with that graphene hype phase. Mm. And I remember the best way or the sort of the only way they could almost produce a single sheet of graphene which is from my understanding just a single layer of carbon atoms in almost like a regular lattice shape Mm. was by using um, two sides of sticky tape it was a pretty crude method but that was the one they had found was most effective at the time right Mm. but I'm sure the technology's come a long a long way since then yeah yeah I don't I I'm I'm sure the the methods of come a long way i know that cobalt and lithium are obviously big competitors for that you know that particular resource but i do think that the the, the use of graphene is is going to be a long-standing one if the ev market continues 
Um, mm, and I suppose use the use of graphene, what increases the surface area of the potentially the material that can be um, charged, right? Mm. So you can carry more charge per square centimeter or micron or whatever you want to, your unit of measure is. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it also depends as well on the the demand from big market players. I mean, I know Tesla's EVs are more lithium ion, right? So yes. That this is kind of a different different resource, but I wouldn't be surprised if the, kind of the graphene or cobalt markets were picked up with Tesla as well. Yeah, I mean their pace of innovation with any Elon company um, is second to none. It's elongated. Let's just say that. It's the inverse of elongated. It's actually massively compressed in terms of timelines. In terms of timelines, yes. In terms of yes. actual my mental capital, it's elongated. Leaps and bounds. But Brother Bear, this actually brings me on to kind of where, where I wanted to, to focus on. Um, we, we mentioned a little bit with, with China there, the kind of... The mining operations and the dependency and how everything has come to be in terms of our day-to-day -day interactions with every product we consume all seems to come back to the People's Republic of China. And I want to open up the kind of a forum with this um, podcast um, on the topic of sort of free trade and protectionism. Um, economic nationalism and, and economic libertarianism and sort of how far um, each one um, carries the human race forward. Um, I think I think that it's timely that we discuss this, Andre, because of the supply chain nightmare that we're currently seeing, um, mm -hmm. particularly in all the, the consumer electronics um, and basically anything that has a computer chip um, is affected by this insane part shortage um, that the world is currently grappling with. Um, one example is the um, the Ford plant in uh, Kentucky and the Ford plant, the huge huge one in Dearborn, Michigan, and these have been closed down for weeks. Um, you know, they literally cannot move F-150s off the shelves um, because each computer in every car contains about 80 or 90 chips. Um, that's just one of the starkest examples. Automotive is kind of the first sector to get chips in the industry. But this is kind of unprecedented in terms of the supply chain nightmare we're seeing. Um, so I want to expand the the conversation onto the macro level and, and also get your thoughts on, you know, what would be a healthy way to go? Because, can, because basically China has us by the balls. <laughs> we're incredibly beholden to this country um how do we get out of this mess how do we move forward without you know completely moving down the the nationalist mindset mm. i think at the very highest level this is a symptom of nationalism as you say just the the end of that wonderful monologue um yes so i understand amd i mean first and foremost let's talk about this shortage dynamic that we're seeing that's mm. playing out and seemingly um ever deeper in its severity um <clears throat> there is a microchip shortage um the root cause of which i'm sure we'll dive into later on 
but I understand sort of AMD to be the key player in China, at least the one I'm know, sort of aware of. And then from the US side, I know there's a company called Micron, which is a significant producer of microchips. Um, now, I haven't looked at the share prices of either of those companies, but I'm sure it's gone up mm. due to the massive demand for those. And, and cars are increasing sort of consumers of microchip technology, you know, probably Tesla leading the way there in terms of car companies almost becoming more technology companies increasingly as opposed to old legacy manufacturing. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that that that's I think tech, Tesla certainly is more akin to a technology company than a car traditional car manufacturer as understood in the legacy world. Yeah, I think it has far more in common with say a company like Uber or um, you know any exactly. any other any other company that's that's pushing forward R and D than it does with say Ford or or Nissan. Particularly when um, increasingly their USP becomes the self-driving function which is you know powered by microchips and some of the best self-driving ai out there yeah yeah exactly um their drive is not so much big volumes big profits big big numbers right it's it's more um huge strides like clear differentiation it's like clear differentiation and market leader in that space yeah yeah he's striving to do something that no one else has or can do right um but he's applying that to a particular product in this case it's cars um Mm. so yeah yeah market leadership differentiation yeah Mm. exactly and at a risk of um going on a tangent here on evs which is always such a wealthy and interesting and full of depth topic Mm. um going back to the current microchip supply shortage I think, yes, it's important to hold on to your manufacturing base. I think the likes of Germany and Japan are testament to that. Mm. Um, I think it's dangerous to sort of make that transition and believe you can just leapfrog and forget manufacturing and supplement that with purely sort of tertiary service-based economies. I think you do that at your own risk and to probably to your detriment, as we've seen, mm. because the, the German economy has probably been the most robust in the in in the European Union, mm. and then Japan, you know, again has held sort of a long-standing um, respect in terms of the electronics mm. brands that it has there. So, I think uh, as much as the nation-state we see almost on this podcast and the view of Robert's talk is generally that nations are something of a glorified um, tribe, if you like. Yeah. And, and something that's not necessarily, and this is a controversial view, not necessarily very completely desirable. And actually, we increasingly want to move to a world where, you know, you are seen that you would do see yourself as a citizen of the globe, as cheesy as that sounds, mm, mm. Um, and not so much part of a tribe, albeit a big one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the goal is, and I know we've conveyed this with a lot of our podcasts, right, to to have more of a, a globalist outcome um and globalist is actually kind of a tainted dirty word but i think it is so tainted right it's so clintonized it's so clintonized and, and i think and there's some people that i really have a lot in common with and, and agree with on many political um stances that would would put themselves as anti-globalist and for very good reason um i think we we want to be internationalist um and fairly libertarian in our outlook um the 
issue with the supply chain nightmare we're seeing right now is is very much a, it's been a perennial issue you've mentioned germany and japan absolutely um the the primary and secondary manufacturing um that hasn't been farmed out has been retained i, I don't actually know the source of that whether it's it's been kind of decades and decades of government initiatives or if it's just the the kind of smarts and long-sightedness of of a mixture of companies and, and individuals but you can definitely see the the fruits of of that blooming now um right now when it comes to so so to go down the i do i do want to don't want don't want to stray too much from the the issue that we're seeing right now in the electronics industry um and it's unfortunately not related to a single manufacturer or commodity type so the real issue is actually there's a, a raw material shortage to fabricate the parts themselves um, in particular this comes down to copper um, which you've probably seen some of the the price hikes on that um, yeah we're also seeing a reduction in labor at facilities due to covid oh now we can't have 100 people in one room we can only have 20 um and of course, there's been a mass increase in the electronics market. So the demand is there because of EVs in China, consumer demand, everyone working from home and being at home all the time. So anything from microprocessors to memory and timing components um, have all gone up in terms of lead time, sometimes from, from kind of six weeks to 52 weeks and above. So insane doubling and tripling and quadrupling of lead times. Um, now, right now, we're looking at about 17% um, of chip foundries um, being in, sorry, 17% of chips consumed in the US are made in the US. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the remaining balance is, is all farmed out, particularly in China, um, is, is a little bit in Mexico, but particularly in China. So this is a very kind of vulnerable situation the U.S. is in and, and you yeah. know, the entire Western world. I think as much as I love the free market, it's it's sort of the thing that unfortunately it comes back to as to why we're in this position in the first place. If you look at the broader dynamics, you know, the free market dictates that you seek out um, the best margins, right? Mm -hmm. And the best margins mean you reduce your cost base. You're, by reduce it, the best way to reduce your cost base is to find the cheapest labor where, wherever that may be, and that happens to be China. Mm -hmm. So it's completely understandable <laughs> why we're in the predicament we're in. Um, whether it's justifiable and we should have had more foresight and realized this was going to be sort of something of an inevitable outcome if we were to outsource till death do us part like it, it's it, it seems that you know we've dug well the us at least has dug its own grave um <laughs> there aren't many native um chip manufacturers that i know of apart from micro nvidia is nvidia us based i think it is right or is it not how do you spell I it might Nvi be grossly nvidia nvidia Nvi nvidia so um, i mean they're best known for their gaming um graphics cards yeah nvidia yeah i don't know whether that i think they're us based um but um yeah i, I think yeah. i think this probably is just a lack of foresight and a um a striving for short-term profit which you know for all of its downsides i think the free market is a force for good it's just that these are sometimes the side effects of capitalism doing what capitalism does yeah yeah this is um very true it's kind of a, a symptomatic of of capitalism um 
I don't know, by the way, if NVIDIA um, builds in North America, but is is a US company. Um, yeah, but that that certainly is sim- symptomatic. Um, I, th- I think the issue the issue we've seen um, is that so many of these companies based in Silicon Valley, um, you know, they they kind of tout the line of designed in California, which gives you kind of the um, this vision of the primacy of thousands of mines in you know Palo Alto. Um, inventing and making the latest technology, but the reality is, um, these these come out from overseas, right? Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, Nvidia there. is um, an American multinational, mm. corporated in Delaware. But does it build based... in the U.S. or does it build overseas? That would. Uh, Let me uh, do some research. Some digging, some homework. Well, no doubt the headquarters will be in here, but you make a very important distinction about where is their manufacturing footprint. Yes. Yes. Yes, because of course Apple, you know, with their ties to Foxconn. Um, of course. So. Brother Bear, there was there was an interesting survey survey recently um, with the American public, um, and this this kind of came in the wake of the pandemico, um, and it was a poll asking Americans if they would want to buy more U.S. made products. So the caveat was as long as they don't have to pay more for them. And basically, the poll found that sixty nine percent said that an item being made in the U.S. was somewhat important. But the but sixty three percent wouldn't be willing to pay more than at least than, than at very most a ten percent premium um, for something to be American made. So again, with the the kind of democratic nature of capitalism, is there even room for things to change? Um, you know, television's prime example. Um, you talk to anyone older than seventy, um, and they'll tell you that televisions in the UK or in the US cost a huge amount more um, back in the 50s than they did now to the point at which, you know, you'd usually have a number of families sharing one television set. Um, the the things have changed now because the cost has changed now because all this is farmed out to China and the cost has been forced down. So the question is, how desirable even is it to bring these manufacturing capabilities home? Um, it's a great question you know is this actually a natural law almost a natural transition to move to the service industry and then to the age of no work and uh, finding new meaning and ubi um you know that's maybe a bit far-fetched but i think that's coming sooner than people think Hmm. um and sorry to just quickly diving back into what you were talking about with the outsourcing yes no no just looked into it now and nvidia does do much um, it does outsource much of its manufacturing. So while outsourcing the manufacturing, so it's, it's much of their hardware, their factories are produced, manufactured by third-party partners. Mm. So that is um, very interesting, um, but not entirely surprising at all. And I believe the same is true of Micron, another big US name. Mm. But like you say, I think it's the brains that sit in the... US in terms of you know this is the blueprint this is what it needs to do this is what it needs to look like and then it's the manufacturing bases third-party partners that actually go ahead and execute the hardware Mm. yep those are the ones that are actually executing the hardware often uploading the firmware onto 
the um, devices themselves. Here's a um, Alex Jones conspiracy for you. How about that? Uh, the uh, microchips manufactured in Chinese factories are implanted with Chinese malware. When you said malware, did you say malware? M A O where? Malware. So um, insidious um, listening devices, basically data scraping to be um, centralized and brought back to China. That was a poorly timed joke. I was I was uh, asking if you meant Chairman Malware. But, ah. uh, you know, but yes, I totally agree. Malware. Malware. I love it. <laughs> Alex Jones. Communist malware. Communist malware. Brother Bear, the, thing, the fact of the matter is manufacturing jobs tend to actually be good jobs. That's the problem. Like when they, when they're compared to the the retail sector, um, usually you're looking at between thirty and forty thousand dollars a year, um, whereas you kind of retail sales workers and burger flippers are making between twenty and thirty dollars thousand dollars a year. So, I think from the capitalist perspective, maybe we're just trading the means for the variance. And what I mean by that is. Um, on average, things are much better outsourcing. You know, people that can pay workers less in the West. Um, people can outsource their products for cheaper. Um, but just every so often, maybe every 20 years or every 50 years, you reach a crisis. And the, you know, maybe it's just a once in a hundred year event, like a pandemic. And, and that's kind of the variant that you're trading. Um, that's just it a is thought. An anyway. astute is an astute point you make you know this is just another transition it's much much like you know the mechanization of agriculture mm. you know there was for a period of time an overhang in terms of labor and that labor was no longer required and therefore it was seen as a negative maybe we are just seeing the same dynamic play out here in native manufacturing i i wouldn't be surprised if that were the case mm. and it's actually just making sure that the service sector develops matures to absorb that overhang mm. Mm. that perhaps is it um i think it is right it's just yeah. it's just that manufacturing has sort of found its new home i mean capitalism finds a way always does and like i said earlier it's, it often comes down to lowering um or increasing bottom line one of the best ways to do that is to uh decrease costs so it's not entirely surprising dynamic and in fact almost inevitable right mm. with the benefit of hindsight and um like you say potentially not undesirable mm. as much as people moan about it it's like you've got to move on at some point and inevitably something will take its place you know people talk about the end of jobs but then the end of jobs has always been something that people have worried about. You know, it's it's funny. It's 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 a it's a, it's a fear that's echoed almost through cent the centuries, right? Well, you had like God. What what are we going to do on our farms once everything's mechanized and automated? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you'd stop working at the farms and you you know work at the grocery store, which is actually selling the products you're farming. So you know, yeah. there's just. A, a natural stepping stone maybe that we're just not aware of and can't even fathom at this point yes well people did protest about electricity when it became a thing and there was much fear that it would <laughs> <laughs> that it would uh, rob people of of employment obviously predating that you had the luddite movement as well 
and then fast forward you had deindustrialization in places like Yorkshire and and the Rust Belt in the US and now we're kind of seeing a fourth generation of that through AI um <clears throat> but yeah the, that's the question is it is it even desirable um because you could go down the other extreme route where you have a system of autarky which I know is what General Franco employed as his kind of method of economic success and that's basically everything is made within the domestic country everything you can possibly make um is is made at home um so it's kind of that seen as sort of economic fascism and it it wasn't even pragmatic in any way um well you could say that capitalism's kind of found the best of both worlds in the sense that you know the management the um, direction and the design aspects of a given company like apple are all kept in domestically mm. and then you know what is no longer sort of desirable potentially from you know the the, the new level that american workers have come to expect then maybe the, the the manufacturing is the first thing to go and that's not entirely surprising and it's maybe this hybrid model where a good portion of the jobs remains um you know and, and there's not it's a non-trivial amount of work to, to to do apart from the manufacturing right mm, mm. so maybe crying over spilt beans like manufacturing is actually wrong we should look to okay well how can you become relevant in this new dynamic yep. in terms of your domestic workforce and you know whether that means retraining looking at obtaining new qualifications and so be it yeah yeah it's um the case can be made of of remaining relevant in the the new economic landscape um manufacturing has always been about national autonomy um so what i what i kind of mean by that is that um products made in allied countries can capitalism is quite crafty in the way that it farms out those um products to push the price down um but it can pick and choose um giving companies the ability to basically affect things in their own countries from working conditions to consumer rights. So you want to kind of walk that balance and, and not slip off into one or the other too extremely. Um, I do believe that we've gone too far down the outsourcing route in mm. most Western countries. Um, I'm not advocating nationalist um, protectionism but I certainly think that um, we've kind of overstepped and, and we could have been as shrewd as, as the leaders in countries like Germany and Japan. Um, even parts of the states, I mean, electronics, no, but certainly the, the kind of farming industries um, and mm. the oil and gas industries have, have remained alive and well. Um, yes. I think yes. there's a certain uh, prudishness in some countries that stops people from they don't want their they don't want oil on their hands really um mm. a case in point uh, you know i think the uk has tried to distance itself from that as is norway to have kind of a more environmentally friendly cleaner um image on the international stage but obviously in the same breath it doesn't hesitate to consume oil at very high prices from opec countries mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm very much aligned with domestic production 
of food in particular mm. um, not having the air miles and guilt attached to that in terms of the carbon it took to get some asparagus to you in winter like it's uh, <laughs> it's really depressing if you like the asparagus and it came all the way from japan and uh, it's just like ugh, you know we are becoming ever more conscious of our carbon footprint i think slowly mm. and gradually some more than others but i think we're getting there and i think it's something we do need to start considering but i i think to think of sort of protect manufacturing based protectionism might be going a little too far because it would go against the natural um, dynamic that's at play which is making the planet sort of ever more integrated mm. um, which is I don't think is a bad thing bar food um, maybe because food is sort of such a, a low cost product and it's almost a shame to be using carbon for that mm. for the transport of that and it really should be the one thing we make an effort to make native as possible you know with even if it means like greenhouses and um, vertical greenhouses almost like um, blocks potentially one day skyscrapers where you know we're looking to utilize solar energy to convert to electricity and just farm insane yields mm. I mean Denmark I think it is, is, it, is it the Dutch are producing so much food because they've perfected these greenhouse methods mm. they know what kind of light works best um, this LED light of like red and blue light seems to work best in terms of getting the most yield out of any given crop. Yeah, and all and engineering NAS, this down to almost a fine science where farming's become a fine science, and instead of like just the way you even grow like a tomato plant, the way it grows naturally, you you don't get as much yield if you were to almost grow it and encourage it to grow as a tree by hanging it upside down. And these crazy like engineering. Uh, it's, it's almost become it really has become a science yeah and but in doing so it actually becomes a net exporter of food because <laughs> there's not enough demand to um cover off the incense insane supply through this perfection of the farming method yes beautifully bro brother bear i think i think that um domestic production of food um and most goods and services actually opens the door to r d um I think that because the drive to get cost down is so severe overseas, that drive for R&D just isn't there. Um, mm. Whereas, you know, the forefront of technologies admittedly is still in the West um, when it comes to food production, when it comes to electronics. Um, okay, maybe not EVs, there's some awesome innovations coming out of China. Um, but Definitely, you know, where the money is there to spend in, in boom times, you know, you're going to see that R&D leveraged in, in the West. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think there's got to be a happy medium, right? I mean, we don't want to go down the economic nationalist part, uh, path. That's, that's a very slippery slope into decline um, and to limiting people's opportunities. And, and eventually it... I think inevitably it just transfers over into racism. Um, mm. Even if it's not conscious racism, even if it's just, you know, protecting your own, um, you know, on a, or tribalism might be a more um, apt word. Um, but so saying that, um, you know, there's one, one stat I read yesterday about, it was in an article called The Chips Are Down. Um, mm. And um, this is from an analyst from USA Today. And... At this point, 12% um, of the global chip market is made in the US 
this was at 37 percent in 1990 so mm -hmm. we've in even in the past 20 30 years um when by modern standards the world was pretty globalized um we've still i feel outsourced we've really pushed it to the limit in terms of outsourcing um and i would say it's kind of gone beyond perhaps what it should have been um yeah to the point at which it's it's really robbed western countries of control over their own mm. inventory and it's robbed individuals of trades um and and in a way it's it's kind of reduced some of their i'd say the diversity of options you could have in life so leo do you know like how they've like you say um they've almost foregone a level of control they previously had do you think there's genuinely sort of any credence to a conspiracy that would sort of go along the lines of um well if it's with china you know we can't trust them to design exactly what we wanted there might be some sort of loophole in that circuit board that may sort of be there for um, insidious purposes i don't even know if that's something we should entertain or if it's just a alex jones theory no fuck it it isn't an alex jones theory because every single day every single day um new companies pop up in the united states in canada in europe and they're obsessed with ndas if anything goes over to china um you know it is almost seen as lost um ndas are a standard protocol between mm. companies over here yes. um i think intellect you you actually put it perfectly a few weeks ago on a brobes talk podcast you said ip theft has long been a chinese pastime <laughs> and i think it was so well put and it's so true as well because any new innovation um you know you have companies <laughs> in iot you have companies that are trying to basically achieve their dreams and as soon as these get sent the design and assembly documents get sent to china suddenly they see their own product popping up in a year or two <laughs> yeah well this is that such a sad thing because i think mm. as much as the you know russia the likes of russia the likes of china envy the us and in all its innovation and free thinking by being this sort of autocratic states they are they're sort of just you know destroying crushing any sort of mm. free spirit outside of the box thinking because they're so in the box from an early age they're never really given permission to train that muscle in the mind that's right and i, th I think that any dictatorship is not going to play by the rules um mm. because there's no incentive to they're out of every kind of protocol and expectation that you would get from a western country yeah, they're almost like the ultimate, they don't practice what they preach. Like, they, they expect ultimate and complete obedience from their citizens, but they themselves break every rule in the book. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's kind of the essence of, I suppose, dictatorial, um, autocratic regimes, right? It's, it's all about... Incredibly selfish, actually, at the core, right? Yes, yeah, it's a selfish, kind of chauvinistic, red fascism. Self-preservation. Self-preservation, um, kind of do whatever you can to get to the top, step on others... And stay there. And stay there, exactly. I think there's a lot of envy um, that comes from China. Um, and yes. Just as you said, the kind of an envy for the free thinking. Um, America isn't perfect so far from it. And, you know, nowhere's perfect. But it's it's a damn sight freer um, than a, a country where you can't even freely use Google. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I think that that envy... Um, 
is is apparent when China doesn't play by the rules. So yeah, the the quick and dirty of it is really that you know any kind of new innovation, you're really you're really playing with a loaded gun if you're going to send that off to a Chinese manufacturer. Um, yeah, you have to. Have, and the, yeah. the 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 autocratic state can almost see itself almost in a um, mutually exclusive scenario whereby you know it will never enable pure and complete freedom um but by doing so it will never have the beautiful innovations that um sprout from that no so you know you can't have your cake and eat it i'm sorry absolutely it will remain the world's factory um and and the best they can do you know for the longest time is simply copy that's it it's it's just going to be fabrications and very low pricing incentives that's yeah but it it will never and this is where japan has really excelled in that it's it's got that image of national autonomy through innovation as well as manufacturing mm. um mm. with china it kind of has the inverse where it's just gone for the cheap the cheap option um you know perfect perfect case in point is guitars you know if you if you bought a guitar in the 70s um there was a good chance that it could be made in Spain or made in England. There's even, you know, string instrument industry was big in Poland. Now, if you buy a, a guitar from, an, you know, Argos or your your music shop, there's a very good chance it would have been made in China. Um, yes. You know, and because yes. that's been replicated and mass produced. Okay, on one level, that's, it's, a, it's satisfying a demand um, that's much higher than in the 70s. But on the other level, um there's a mismatch and, and China will never be able to reach those those innovative heights. It will never have its cake and eat it, as you say. Yes, exactly. But because by doing by enabling freedom and true out of the box thinking, um, that they would be potentially undermining their own existence and they, you know, they can't even bear to entertain that option. So it doesn't happen. Um, I, I think what's really interesting and encapsulates this conversation really well is two lines, which is on the back of every single Apple product out there, which is made in China, but also in there just to, you know, console the US designed in California. Yeah, designed in California. <laughs> it's on everything, isn't it? It's always designed yeah. in, in California. Oh. <laughs> And because they they can't bear the thought that it's 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 all China. But just going back to the point, it's like China can only ever do the best it can do is a pastiche, a copy, um, everything from Ray Ban sunglasses to a Starbucks. There's even like fake Starbucks lookalike cafes in China, <laughs> because they. It's sad to say, but by and large, as a nation, because of the system they've um, entrenched their citizens in they don't have a free innovative spirit in their minds uh, yeah absolutely it's and this is this is where you get into kind of culture bleeding into the economy right um yeah it can't birth original ideas in many ways right mm. and even if you look at the biggest corporations in china they're often based on models of successful companies in the US, whether that's Alibaba copying Amazon and eBay, or whether it's something like, um, mm. you know, look, look, look at the Chinese manufacturers um, of the EVs, you know, mm. copying uh, Musk and Tesla. Mm. But but it's, it's always been the case that the US has led the way. 
and I, I, I this is what gives me hope and gives me the hope because the US as far as it, you know far from perfect it it is it is far from perfect yeah but I'd so much rather they be the dominant power in a dynamic state as is as opposed to it being the likes of China yes because I think that is a terrifying prospect yeah I don't think we want to get to a position where we're we're in a unipolar world we've got one superpower and it's China um and again it's just because of the it's because of the regime um it's it's very um public knowledge it's very common knowledge that there's um a genocide going on there um mm, yeah with the Uyghurs and and also um and I know this harks back to our our geography classes in in university but the migration um restrictions that are placed on rural citizens and people in in, in people in areas outside of the big uh, east coast cities um there's so many restrictions of freedom um on people in their in their daily lives whether it's the the websites they go on the things they say the food they eat where they can travel um we don't want a country like that being the biggest and most important in the world so as you said you know we can pick so many things wrong with the US whether it's the way they treat guns to their healthcare system yeah we can talk talk about how bad that is to the cows come home but man i'd i'd rather they were in power for a million years than china was in power for one year <laughs> exactly 100% i couldn't put it better myself because it 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 is a terrifying prospect but literally on this podcast just in these last few minutes what gives me hope is the fact that no time soon will the chinese government permit free thought and therefore true innovation can't sprout mm. so they're um they will they've hindered themselves yes and that's a good thing um <laughs> there there's there's no way like I, they, they must come to this realization if they haven't already um but they would sooner i don't know not be the greatest power in the world than give up their authoritarian grip mm. that's very well put innovation in the the capitalist landscape cannot sprout from a country that represses its citizens and you know even if it's opened up its doors to market socialism or whatever kind of government apparatus variant of capitalism capitalism they have is it's just it, they can never reach the heights of innovation that you would get in a country like Japan or the US or the UK because there's just too many restrictions on lifestyle choices, supply, demand, and all the kind of human markers that make up an economy. Let's not forget, at the end of the day, an economy is made up of humans, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, exactly. And uh, they can't afford to go down the path of um, allowing their citizens to think freely and actually innovate stuff and bring out brands that are genuinely innovative natively, because that's mutually exclusive to authoritarianism and free thoughts and authoritarianism don't mix concluding comments um you know authoritarianism does not mix with free thought and, and and free trade um the west though could certainly learn a thing or two um <laughs> from countries like germany countries like japan uh when it comes to keeping certain production at home and, and that doesn't have to be a whole lot but just a quota at least come on <laughs> like some mm -hmm. kind of quota that keeps 
manufacturing um, at home to a, to at least a, a limited degree. I think there is hope. Um, mm. I think that there's um, there's a range of of companies. I think there's a there's an article article I read uh, recently. Um, again, talking about the design by Apple in California effect, um, the, the kind of image of, of companies not not matching up with the truth. Um, mm. But generally, there is a, there is a wave of, of electronics manufacturing coming back to the US. Um, there's a recognition amongst the public that the higher value, high quality products do need to come home. Um, okay, maybe the very low budget affordable gadgets will not anytime soon. Mm. But I think there's a kind of reshoring effect um, that we're going to be seeing over the coming few years. Yes, absolutely agree. And I think um, that grip will tighten in the UK context, particularly post-Brexit. So uh, interested to see what that would look like. I know there's the likes of companies like Arrival, um, an EV manufacturer based in Vista, um, native to the UK. And hopefully a force to be reckoned with in the future and hopefully the source of many jobs to come because it's a technology company and you know we can think about manufacturing as these smoldering coal plants but actually it's become something of a sophisticated art particularly in the chip field you find yourself in brother yes indeed brother bear absolutely very well put um i thoroughly enjoyed this conversation brother bear i think free trade versus protectionism is uh it's a it's a conversation as old as as time itself, and it's gonna it's gonna continue. Um, let's keep the conversation going, and um, until next time, over and out. Cheerio, pow, pow. <laughs>